That's Pete. He's a retired guy here who refuses to stay retired. And you'll see the signs, grit, on the walls all around, on the, frankly, sometimes on the carpets that are going to be replaced. We want to be reminded of what's going on here. Not just what's going on in the building, but what we believe is going on in our lives. It's easy sometimes when you see a building go up to forget that this is what we were created for. We believe here that there is a God. That that God created us in his image and part of being made in the image of God is that we are to be builders. People, women and men, young and old are to be builders And sometimes that's a little hut, and sometimes it's a school, and sometimes it's a skyscraper, and sometimes it's rebuilding the ancient ruins that fall down. Sometimes we outgrow something, and it it needs to be made bigger and remodeled. Sometimes the building comes in reviving something that has been demolished whether that is the Twin Towers of New York or the incredible destruction of Syria or what's happening now in Texas and in Florida or maybe the brokenness happening at your house or your school or your job. Something needs to be rebuilt, put back together. In some ways, CPC has been waiting for 20 years to remodel. Since we built this, it has never been the right time, the right place to make our facility more useful for reaching out to new people, for an environment that would help children and grandparents, single and youth, not only feel like they have a place here, but they could experience the grace and love of God. There's so much more to the idea of building than having the structure there. And we want to explore that in one of the stories of a rebuilding project. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah. To help you, I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, reach forward, take out uh, one of the pew Bibles in front of you, please, and let's try to find the book of Nehemiah together. It's in the first half. It's in the Old Testament. If, uh, if you need a little help, it's on page 713 in most of these. I, uh, I, I looked through my files because I love the story of Nehemiah, and I talked about Nehemiah just recently, 23 years ago. And I believe that I'm a different person. We're a different church. You need to hear in a fresh way the story of Nehemiah. So let's start it together. I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, if, if it hasn't already been done in your book, to circle or underline three phrases in this. So keep them out. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It was the month of Kislev in the 20th year. That means it was like, it was January in the 20th year of the reign of the emperor of Babylon. 
And I was in the palace complex at Susa, that's in Iraq. It was January, the 20th year of Xerxes, and I was in the palace complex in Iraq. And later he's going to say that Nehemiah was there because he was the cupbearer to the king. That's important to understand. The, the role of the cupbearer is very important. He, um, he's basically the food tester. The cupbearer isn't the person that comes out and goes, oh, this is a nice 1948 Chablis. I think you'll appreciate the nose on the wine. Let it breathe. He goes, no, they told me to bring the red wine, pours it, and hands it to the king. The king hands it back and says, why don't you try it first? Because poisoning was common back then. And so the cupbearer would take the wine and drink it. And they would talk for several minutes to make sure he didn't collapse. And they would eat the meal together. The cupbearer eating the food first. It was an odd relationship, an intimate relationship. And one of the things that happens is that the cupbearer often becomes very close to the king. Who does he trust more in his whole life with his whole life? Often one of the last people in the day to talk to the king. The king finds out what real people think. Because here's a person who will who will literally risk his life for the king. Okay, these are the stories of Nehemiah. Hanani, one of Nehemiah's brothers, had just arrived from Judah with some fellow Jews. I asked him about the conditions among the Jews to survive the exile and about Jerusalem. What's happened is that they have been crushed. The Israelites have been crushed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and the last group destroyed the city knocked down the walls of the city, and they took about 10% of the Jews captive and brought them into exile. Now, it's important. They didn't take everybody. They only took the top 10%, the young leaders and the current leaders of Israel. They figured if you get rid of the leaders, you won't have a problem with the revolution. And if you take the leaders back to Babylon over to Assyria and teach them our language and our customs and show how much better it is here when we send them back, they will be little Babylonian rulers in Israel. That's Nehemiah. He's one of the lucky ones, the exiles. I asked him about the Jews who remained. And Hen and I told me, the exile survivors in the province are in bad shape. Conditions are appalling. The wall of Jerusalem is still rubble. It's been like 40 years. The wall of Jerusalem is still rubble. The city gates are still cinders. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. That's verse 4, isn't it? Why don't you circle that? When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. We're going to talk about what it's like to rebuild a life, rebuild a church, take a next step in a society. And I got to contend that it all begins when somebody sits down and their heart is broken. When people's hearts are broken, that's when God starts to rebuild. We're calling this series Grit. It's a reminder of all the dust that will settle and make things harder all the time. But grit is also the determination to make something different, to endure. And you don't get grit until it becomes personal. Whether it's a relationship or a job or school or a church, it has to become personal. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. 
Where is that hitting you? Now, it's important just, just for a second to realize this is not feeling bad about the news. The news 24-7 is filled with bad stories. It is designed to make you feel bad. It does a very good job of that. The challenge is that after you have gone through a 24-7 news cycle and you have heard about DACA and Syria and Harvey and Irma and immigration and politics, you are ready to kill yourself and everybody around you. It's just terrible. But if everything is bad, you become numb. So that's not what he's talking about. When I heard this, when I heard this, this one thing, it punctured the shield of all the bad news. It became personal, and I wept. There was an evangelist missionary who went to Korea right after the Korean War to do evangelism and instead found himself visiting all of the orphanages where the Korean children had been abandoned, and it broke his heart. It literally broke his heart. And the way he described it is he says, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. He said, I saw these children through the eyes of God, and both God and I wept. Where does that come, that moment where something pierces the shield? Usually, I think it's not something you're looking for, but you have to be open to it. When something breaks your heart, when you sit down and cry, part of you is going, why doesn't somebody do something about that? And like I said, it can't be every bad thing that happens. But it can't be nothing. If nothing disturbs you, we need to talk. There was a a businessman in Chicago about the turn of the last century uh, when a dollar was like $20. And he walks out on Michigan Avenue, busy then, busy now. He's walking and he sees a, a little delivery boy running with a basket in his hands, ducking in and out, bringing some food to a rich family. And he watches the boy get cut off and knocked down to the ground, and as he falls, his basket goes spilling, and the basket is topped off with eggs, and all the eggs are dashed to the sidewalk and broken. Well, this is Chicago. It's not New York. New York, Chicago people come up, oh, that's too bad, and then they walk by. (laughs) Everybody in Chicago came up to the sidewalk and said, oh, I feel so bad. And then they walk by. Well, this man comes up to the scene, sees the little boy trying to put the eggs back together, and he says, oh, I feel so bad. Then he reaches into his pocket, he looks at the crowd, he says, I feel this bad, with some money in his hands, I feel this bad, how bad do you feel? And he puts the money in the boy's basket. I feel this bad, how bad do you feel? What breaks God's heart breaks our heart, and it says, it bothers me this much, how much does it bother you? You guys ever have a quote that just sort of sticks with you? I was reading a manuscript about a month ago, and this one quote just, it just killed me. It was by uh, the guy from Chariots of Fire. You remember uh, Eric Liddell, the runner, who uh, is the fastest guy in the world, Chariots of Fire, but he's also a Scottish missionary Well, he turns away from all the fame of winning the Olympics and goes as a missionary to China. In the the years before World War II, builds up this big church and does great missionary work. And then in World War II, he and many of the Christians, many of the missionaries 
are put into a concentration camp called Shantung, Shantung Compound. The author of the book, Shantung Compound, says, yeah, and there were all the Protestants, and this guy said, and all the Protestants, they weren't worth a damn. It was his words, not mine. They weren't worth a damn. They were judgmental and grumpy, except for Eric Liddell. Wherever Eric went, there was a little spot of light. And the quote that I love from Eric Liddell was this. Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and wreck God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. I love that phrase. I want to I live with that phrase. God is not helpless among the ruins. Nehemiah sits down and he weeps and he senses that God is not helpless among the ruins. So back to our story, aching hearts, verse four. Nehemiah says, I mourned for days. And we're gonna find out really, it wasn't just days, it was for months. I mourned for four months and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is um, a, a second rank figure in the Old Testament. You know, there's David and Moses and Joseph and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the big figures. The only figure in the Old Testament that nothing bad is said about is Nehemiah. And I don't think it's because he was smarter. I don't think it's because he wrote about himself. I think the reason that Nehemiah is portrayed so well is that right from the start and right till the end, Nehemiah prays and prays and prays again. Here he prays for four months. Dangerous, dangerous prayers. For three years now, CPC for three years has started our autumn by saying, we believe there's a God, we believe that God somehow wants to talk to us. The most important thing in your life, most important thing in your life is if somehow we can convince you that this God who exists wants to talk to you and wants you to talk to him. Most important thing that we do here, if you get nothing else out, there is a God that God wants to talk to you. And so we talked about the prayers of Jesus, talked about the prayers of Moses. Last year, talked about the prayers of Paul. This year, it starts with a guy who's telling a story, and all he does is pray. For days, I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant, let your ear listen and your eyes open to the prayer your servant prays day and night for Israel. I confess our sins. But you said to Moses, if we return to you and obey you, then even if your exiled people are at the far end of the world, you'll gather them up. Now give your servant success in the presence of this man. That's prayer number one. Prayer number two can be real fast. Chapter two, verse four. The king said, what do you want? And I, so I prayed real quick and I talked. Number, uh, the, the, the other prayer can be where you learn to lead others in prayer. Listen to us, God. Chapter five, remember me with favor, God. God doesn't forget. Nehemiah wants to make sure he's not forgetting. That prayer, remember me, O God, is five times in there. He prays when opposition rises up. He prays when the walls are finished. He prays at the beginning, the middle, and the end. Now, I, I, I told this in the, in the last uh, service. My friend Tom was sitting there, and, and uh, Tom was biking 
a couple of years ago and went right over his uh, uh, right over his handlebars, wearing a helmet, split the helmet in half, almost died. And I said, what do you remember? He goes, the last thing I remember is I'm going over the handlebars. I'm going, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I go, that's not the best prayer, but it's better than some of the alternatives. <laughs> and, and yet, in the days and weeks that followed, Tom and I prayed for each other, and he is not only healed, he's a better man. Prayer over time changes things. Do you pray over time? you want to rebuild, we need to weep, and we need to pray. Back to the story, okay? Back to the story, it says uh, in chapter 2, it was the month of Nisan, let's call it May, starts in January, now it's May. It was the month of May, the 20th year of Xerxes the king. At the hour for serving wine, I brought it in and gave it to the king. I'd never been sad in his presence before, so he asked me, why the long face? You're not sick, are you? Are you depressed? And that made me even more upset. And so I spoke up. Long live the king. Why shouldn't I be depressed when the city all my family is buried in is in ruins and the city gates are reduced to cinders? There's no defense for Jerusalem. The king asked, so what do you want? Remember the prayer? Praying under my breath real fast to the God of heaven. I said, if it please the king, if you think well of me, send me to Judah where my family's buried so I can rebuild the city. And the king and queen said, how long will your work take? When would you expect to return? This shows that he's been thinking about what he needs to do. Because it's a natural thing for the king to go, "Uh, how long am I going to be without my guy that tells me whether I'm poisoned or not? So I gave him a time, and the king gave his approval to send me. And the story of rebuilding starts. Rebuilding comes. Grit comes. When hearts are broken, and when prayers are made, and when people act. This is the short circuit here. This is what's the difference between a nice sermon and something that messes with you. A lot of you guys go, oh, it was a great story, it made me feel bad. Oh, we prayed together, and it's Tuesday and nothing's happened. We weep, we pray, we don't act couple weeks, Laura and I are going to be in D.C. at a board meeting, and we're going to have dinner with a friend of ours named Gary. Gary was uh, the, the U.S. Justice Department's representative to the Rwanda genocide. A million people, a million people slaughtered with machetes in one month. And his job for the Justice Department for the United Nations was literally to count the bodies how many children, what tribe, how many mothers, how many fathers, who was dead and where. And he would go into churches that were filled this high and schools and homes. And at night he would come home and he could not sleep. He's there for six weeks. He comes back home and he can't go home. He stops at a hotel and he sits on the edge of his bed all night And finally, he starts to cry. He has a profound faith. He started to cry, and he said, God, how could you let that happen? How could you ever let that happen? And he said it was if a voice spoke to him and says, well, why didn't you stop it? Oh, God, come on. 
What are we going to do about all this? You've got to do something. And he said, it was if the voice said, I agree, somebody's got to do something. Gary, you're my plan A. I don't have a plan B. Gary quit his job at the Justice Department, came to a bunch of us in different settings and said, I'd like to start an organization that would bring justice for the poor, that would stand up against the bullies and the corrupt officials, and whether it was sex trafficking or land grabbing or child labor, we would bring justice. And that's how the International Justice Mission was started. Because somebody sat on their bed and wept and talked to their God and prayed and stood up and acted. Now, that's where it usually ends. That's, that's, the, that's the preacher's story, right? That's the, oh, what a story. That could never happen here. It happened here this weekend. I can say it because he's not here, but last night there was a, a young man over there who had an ugly divorce, ugly divorce. And he sat with us and he said, I'm just praying over and over and over because my daughter is afraid of me and I am being denied permission to see my daughter. He says, I'm just praying that I won't be furious and I'm praying that I'll see my little girl. And for years, nothing happened. Years. But he stopped being bitter. He kept trying to reach out to his little girl. And last month, I saw a picture of him and his daughter with their arms around each other at graduation. It ain't all better. But he's rebuilding that life. It happens here. There was a woman who was coming home from Minneapolis on the bus to Edina because her car wouldn't work, and she happens to grumblingly sit next to a lady, and the lady said, I'm in charge of a local food shelter, and, and, and food collection did down 40%, and it's a month from Christmas. And our member said, that's terrible. What are you going to do? She goes, I don't know nothing. I got to do that. So she comes into me and says, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. And that year, she put bags on everybody's car the week before Thanksgiving, and we had over 400 bags for Thanksgiving harvest. And the next year, it was 700, and the next year, it was 1,100, and for years, over 1,000 bags. And that turned into our joy of giving at Christmas, and that's going to turn into something else, because somebody sat down on a bus and wept and prayed, and God built walls. Just last, just last night, a young woman in our congregation discovered that she had a brain tumor and was a person of faith, and she was sick like everybody else. As the disease went on, she said, I cannot believe how blessed I am. I have this incredible family. I sit in this wonderful church. Anything that I want is great. We need to do something for those who don't have my system of support. And last night was the 12th, 13th, whatever, 14th year of a fundraiser called Humor for the Tumor. We're not laughing about cancer, we're laughing at it, so it does not have power. Millions of dollars are being raised. Because when she sat and wept, she prayed, and so she didn't get bitter God gave her something to do, rebuilding the walls. Last, last one, my favorite one. 
these are all good, my favorite, is that uh, there is a doctor here, a physician, and, uh, and, and he was an elder about uh, 20 years ago, one of our session, and he was assigned to the children's department. And uh, in the children's department, um, it, it, uh, this is almost hard to believe, in the children's department, the hardest people to get, to get volunteers for are fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade boys. I know it's hard to believe. But somehow, middle school and junior high boys are not high on the volunteer list. Nobody would step forward. They were begging. Nobody. The doctor finally said, all right. And he started working with fifth and sixth grade boys. Did it for a year. He said, I stunk. But nobody else would volunteer. Goes back the second year and comes in and says, I've got an idea. This is what we'll do. I'm going to tell them a sports story every week that hooks them and tie that to a Bible person or character and see if we can make a connection. And he got better and better and better. And so all of a sudden, I was telling this in the last story, there was a seventh grader there who is poking me. That's the doc. That's doc. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it was a place that people wanted to have their middle school boys go to on Wednesday nights for the last 20 years. Because he had said... This is wrong. And God had said, this is you. And he had said, well, what's next? Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. Nehemiah was sent to the ruins. The person that God uses to rebuild, sits down and cries, lets it get personal, kneels down and prays more than one time, stands up and acts, and God rebuilds. Houses, careers, churches, relationships, those who sit and weep, kneel and pray, stand and act, See God at work. That is what we pray happens here. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the story of Nehemiah. That he wasn't a tough guy who didn't care, but when he heard bad news, he sat down and he cried. I thank you for Nehemiah because he reminds me that, that I need to pray and keep praying and keep praying. And I thank you for Nehemiah. Because unlike me, he doesn't come to church and sing the songs and feel good and pray the prayers and go home. He acted so he got to see you at work building. Bless my sisters and brothers here. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all God's children said, 